Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. This Saturday marks 76 years since the start of the Nuremberg Trials, so I've brought back an episode from the History Hit archive with historian and journalist Tom Bower. Tom's book is fascinating. It's called Blind Eye to Murder, and it examines the controversial policies of the Allied powers towards the Nazi leaders after the Second World War. Most importantly, Tom argues that the Nazi war criminals, most high-ranking ones, were allowed to escape trial. This is a fascinating episode. I really like bringing back these ones that I think deserve a second look from the History Hit archive. But remember, each week, every week, we bring you two brand new military history episodes with world-leading experts. There's now over 200 episodes in our back catalogue. Scroll through. I know there's lots to get stuck into, but we're also a growing community here at Warfare. So get in contact through warfare at historyhit.com if you think there's something we need to cover. But now here's Tom Boer on the Nuremberg Trials. Tom, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What are the big lessons that we should be thinking about on this anniversary of the Nuremberg Trials? Should we be patting ourselves on the back and talking about international law and precedence, or should we remember some of the hypocrisy and the politics that got in the way? Well, I think we should first of all remember that it was an amazing feat to establish the court and to establish the guilt. And that was because the prosecution very well established their guilt through documents and through oral evidence. Of course, there were a lot of hiccups on the way during the trial. But my feeling is that if we hadn't had the Nuremberg trial, anti-Semitism Holocaust denial would be far more rampant now than if we'd not had the Nuremberg trial. The legacy of the Nuremberg trial was that we know for certain that the Germans deliberately tried to murder the Jews, that the Germans waged an aggressive war, that they conspired to cause mayhem across Europe and dominate Europe. And that was established very conclusively in the trial. Why did the trials take place? Was it a new idea? Well, the trial took place very much as an American idea. Churchill and the British government wanted to shoot the top 50 Nazis without trial at the moment they were captured. And they resisted what was entirely an American idea, very much till the last moment in 1945. It was born in Washington, where undoubtedly some of the greatest British common lawyers live and work. And they just thought that they had to have a 
venue to establish the guilt. Originally, the conspiracy by the German government, German establishment to cause war and murder. It developed in America over two years before they actually got the ideas, but they roped in some amazing legal minds. And so by the time at the end of the war in June, the British gave up their opposition to a trial. The Russians always wanted a trial. The French just followed on. And it was a hodgepodge, not least because Germany was in ruins. And there was obviously a huge suspicion by the Americans, not least uh, the British too, of the Russians, for what they'd done under Stalin. Uh, so it wasn't an easy trial, but it was a wonderful example of justice. Let's talk about some of the accused. You've got Martin Bormann, Karl Dönitz, who was in charge of the Navy from 43 onwards and, and ended up briefly being Hitler's successor. Goering, of course. Did they acquiesce to the process? Did they take part in the process? The selection of the defendants was not only on the basis of their notoriety, like Goering, who clearly was one of the great leaders, and Hess, of course, the deputy leader, but also because they wanted to have representatives of each of the so-called criminal parts of the Nazi German state. So they wanted someone connected to the SS, someone connected to the army, someone connected, as you say, it's the Navy, someone connected to the Gestapo. So it went through an industry, of course, although, of course, people like Kaltenbrunner, very incriminated uh, Gestapo officer, he was there because he was a very evil man and rightly hanged at the end, or Hans Frank, the governor of Poland, where he murdered several million. These were people who were certainly evil. So it was a mixture. And of course, the other side were people like Speer, Albert Speer, the architect, so-called, who was also Minister of Armaments, and his deputy, Saukel. And got to the extraordinary situation where Speer, who effectively was in charge of German industry using slave labor, was given a 20-year sentence, whereas his deputy, Saukel, who was a very common working class man who did what Speer told him to do, was hanged. And of course, there were acquittals. There was Schacht, the head of the bank, the Reichsbank, who undoubtedly had financed Hitler but, and represented financiers in the trial, who had a lot to answer for, of course. Uh, but he'd ended the war in a concentration camp. So he could easily plead that he'd been a resistant to Hitler, and he, in the end, he was acquitted. 75 years ago this month, the first session is presided over. Under what law were they being tried? Well, they're being tried under international law, so-called, but also it was a very nebulous law. Crimes against humanity, which has become very fashionable now, was completely unknown at the time. There was a war of aggression, which had really started in the First World War and came out of an agreement called the Kellogg-Briand Pact. The Americans were very keen on that. There was the crimes of conspiracy, it was all the very beginnings of international law in many ways, but that's nothing wrong with that. It was an unprecedented war. And the key was that you needed, at the same time, unprecedented law to cope with that terrible crime that the Germans had committed. Did they recognise the authority of the court, these defendants? Well, they were forced to. One of the tricks of the prosecution was not to give the defendants much chance to defend themselves, although they spoke often at great length in their own defence. They weren't able to get hold of documents and call many witnesses to plead for their innocence. In that sense, it was a show trial. But I think they understood that the victors were going to have their day in court, so to speak, and they played along with it. After all, they hoped, probably all of them, that they were going to get away with it. 
And of course, the Germans would say that the blanket bombing of Nuremberg itself, but also Dresden, was itself a war crime. But also, I think the defendants very much saw it as a somewhat of a Jewish conspiracy against them, Jewish revenge, because a lot of the American lawyers were Jewish. So that's what they were fascinated and obviously had a good motive to want to bring these people to court. They sat under the spotlights. They took part. Very often the judges got very fed up with it all. Very often the prosecutors got fed up with it all. It was very difficult. Many languages, translations. The Germans didn't understand the procedures that well. The Anglo-American war procedures, disputes between the judges. It wasn't an easy trial, but the result was very important for history and for Europe. Did any of them manage to put in a good performance, quote-unquote, and were they tried as a group or did some individuals have more success than others? No, it's very much an individual trial. In that sense, I think it was pretty, in inverted commas, honest. I mean, as I said, Speer, a middle-class, very educated, erudite architect, he convinced the judges that he should be not executed while his deputy was. Goering was going to be executed, whatever happened, as were the two generals, Keitel and Jodl, because they had under them invaded Russia, aggressive war, allowed all the, a lot of mass murders to happen under their control. They're very much architects with Hitler. So they weren't going to impress the judges. Schacht, the banker, did impress the judge. And even Lord Hess, after all, he flew to uh, Britain in 1940, and therefore he could plead that he had tried to stop the war. So I think it was individuals. It was in that sense, it wasn't mob rule. And the judges, according to their own notes, had fierce debates about the fate of the 22 in the courtroom and uh, disagreed and then took a vote. Did some of them use the dock to actually continue their Nazi agenda? Yes, I think uh, not just Streicher, but also Goering too. One of the points you don't find in that trial is any repentance. These were grown mass murderers. These were criminals. These were gangsters. They were not people who were going to in any way apologise for what they'd done. They were very keen on justifying their behaviour, and challenging the prosecution. And they weren't given much chance to do that. The real problem was whether the German people were listening and taking and absorbing the criminality of the people they'd, many of them, listened and followed for the previous 13 years. And the evidence is that very little of the trial after the first week actually reached the German people, who were obviously struggling to survive anyway. But the trial did not have even in history, a great resonance in Germany itself. Did the trial, as it went on, because it went on from now in 1945 for about a year, did it get overtaken by the geopolitics, by the frosting of the relationship between the Allies? And did it change, did it purpose change, the politics of the trial change through its duration? Absolutely. I think as the year 1946 progressed and the differences developed between the Allies, which were already there, obviously, before and during the war, but became more exacerbated. There was great suspicion. The condition of Germany was such that the Allies had to find a way to sustain the country so it didn't starve. There were political differences between the three Western Allies and Russia. So the Nuremberg trial became forgotten, not least because it was going on for so long, and the continent was struggling to get over the war. So to that extent, it did become a victim of the developing Cold War. And worst of all, I think, was that the British were never keen on prosecutions and they were never keen on denazification. 
and Fujizem became somewhat of a safe haven for very incriminated Nazis, whereas the Americans throughout most of 46 were still hunting down Nazis and kicking them out of positions of government and courts and things like that. So there was an underlying tension even between Britain and America about the fate of the Nazis. Why was Britain more friendly to Nazi war criminals? I think the British firstly never really understood what was happening in Nazi Germany. They didn't really understand what had happened to the Jews in Eastern Europe or what had happened to the Eastern Europeans. The Americans were a bit more sensible, but still also quite ignorant. And there was an extraordinary moment where the prosecutor was talking about the Reich Marshal in the Nuremberg trial. And Lawrence, the British judge, said, who are you referring to? And he said, Reich Marshal Goering. I mean, the ignorance was remarkable. So the British were more sympathetic because they just saw it as another war. The Americans had come to Europe to cleanse. They'd come to build a new society. But even in that sense, neither Britain nor America really had much of a plan to rebuild Germany. It was a huge undertaking. And the British were more pragmatic. They thought the people who'd done any job whether it was a police chief or the head of a court or a teacher for the previous 13 years, will leave him in charge because otherwise you'll get someone who doesn't know the job, even if he was an incriminated Nazi. The Americans for the first year weren't prepared to do that. You've written a book and you actually say that they turned a blind eye. I mean, are you referring to the trial of these senior Nazis themselves or is this more generally in German society when, for example, cases were tried by the German courts, a blind eye was turned to murder? Well, I think the blind eye to murder went right through the German society until probably the early 70s. And it started with the British very much. They allowed Nazis to be reinstated. And the Americans as well gradually had to do the same, although they did prosecute after the main Nuremberg trial. They had the subsequent Nuremberg trials of doctors, industrialists, bankers, very incriminated SS men. And they really did try to bring justice to the country and to get the guilty to face their crimes. But even at the end of the process, towards the end of the 40s, they brought in judges from America who were sympathetic to the Germans. And the sympathy started really from anti-Semitism amongst the judges and amongst the British and American administrators of post-war Germany, must be said, and also fear of communism, that the Germans were a bulwark against the Russians and therefore it was wrong to alienate people who needed as allies. So that was the mix at the end of 46, 47. Let's come to the end of the process. Men like Frick, Ribbentrop, Keitel, Yodel, they were hanged. They were hanged. I don't think anyone had any regrets about their fate. I think it was important for Germany. Those sort of people couldn't survive to so be some sort of heroes in the wings. There was great thoughts, of course, how Hitler, when he'd been locked up after the putsch in 23. He then came out the hero with a book. They didn't want to have any locked up heroes, so to speak. So it was important to start that cleansing process. And I think in hindsight, a German or anyone would say that those lives were worth preserving considering the monstrosities of their crimes. I think Nuremberg set an amazing precedent in terribly difficult circumstances thanks to some astonishingly good American lawyers. And I think that the subsequent history of Germany was in the balance. A Blind Eye to Murder was written in the late 70s, when most of German society was still run 
by incriminated Nazis, whether industry or the courts or government, the schools, the doctors, it was awful. But somehow, with the process of time and the death of those people, and also realization, I mean, after the Eichmann trial, and after the kidnap and murder of Hans Martin Schleuer in the late 60s, which was a very important moment, he was an industrial leader, he'd also been in the SS in Czechoslovakia, he was kidnapped and murdered by the Baden-Meinhof group. The Germans began to realize that what had happened at Nuremberg, the judgment that Germany had faced, was not complete. By any reckoning, there were at least 100,000 people in Germany guilty of murder during the Third Reich, and only a fraction. Most of them were reinstated and given their lives back and their prosperity, and kept the property which they'd stolen. That was the other appalling blind eye, so to speak. They profited from the war and they kept it. So that was why I wrote the book, and it shocked the Germans, and more importantly, it shocked many British officials who'd been part of that process. That generation's dead now, and all that survives is the legacy, and that is what Nuremberg is. It's the legacy of that if you do wrong, you must be punished. Goering managed to slip out of the noose, didn't he? He poisoned himself shortly before he was to be hanged, and probably got the poison for an American. I don't think that really matters. He's dead. Thank goodness he's dead. I mean, the, the, what's so fascinating is that none of the leaders of Nazi Germany really survived other than Speer. And I would contend that it was not to society's benefit that Speer came out after 20 years, wrote some books which were hugely popular, became a celebrated ex-Nazi, pontificating about the Third Reich, cleansing his role, cleansing terrible deeds which had happened under Hitler. It would have been better if he hadn't had that opportunity, in my view. But there we are. It hasn't damaged us. You feel that the lofty aspirations for Nuremberg, that it would teach leaders and dissuade people from committing war crimes. I mean, obviously, there have been many terrible, savage acts of genocide and war crimes in the second half of the 20th century and this one. But you feel that Nuremberg remains important. Nuremberg remains important because it wasn't going to prevent Milosevic committing his crimes in Yugoslavia. But anyone who follows Milosevic now knows that the court at The Hague is there, and it is only there to mete out justice to these murderous leaders because of Nuremberg. It was a mess, Nuremberg, in many ways. You can easily criticize it as victor's vengeance or whatever, but it established an extraordinary principle of international justice and peace. It was a terrific triumph for a group of American lawyers who worked terrifically hard to put it together, to understand what to do. And I think we should be very grateful for it, despite all its flaws. The flaws have disappeared, the principle has survived, and that's what's good about it. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast. You say your most recent book is not about Nuremberg, it's about Boris Johnson making ways, which we should perhaps get you on to talk about again. But that book is out now, is it? That's out now, yeah. The Gambler. How's that gamble paying off for him? <laughs> well, we'll see. That's another history lesson. Too soon to see. Well, make sure you go and get The Gambler, everybody. Have a look at that. Are 
you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.